Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Hi, Sid. Hi, Justin. How you doing? Well, I'm pretty good. We had an eventful Thursday, last Thursday. Last Thursday. Yeah, last yes. Thursday. Uh, we, uh, The president of America came here to Huntington, West Virginia. Work. Yes. Uh, we, we, it was, it's my long day at work Thursdays. I always have long, extra long days. Mm -hmm. So the president came on Thursday and Justin and I tried to scramble to leave our respective jobs and get there but by the time to protest. To protest. But... And then by the time we uh, left, uh, the motorcade was coming and we couldn't get across Hal Greer. The, and and the it entire... actually bisects our entire city exactly the, the motorcade path. Yes. The entire city was cut in half and you could not cross from one side to the other. We were stuck on our, at least on the side where our home is. That's nice. Yeah. But we couldn't get there. Couldn't get there. Uh, but uh, obviously we were familiar with what was talked about, what was said. It was broadcast here locally, as you can imagine, and many people attended. And one concern that I know I had, and Justin, I think probably you too, and most people, actually it was written about in the newspaper, so not just me, this isn't like a novel concern, is that... Uh, the president had said he was going to make some kind of special announcement. Right. And a lot of people in this area were kind of hoping it would be opioid addiction related because it is um, devastating our area. There would recently been recommendations made to the president by the Council on uh, Substance Abuse that it should actually be declared a state of emergency. Um, and I, Appalachia, West Virginia, this area in general, in, in regard to the opioid epidemic and i don't know what that would entail so I, it's hard for me to say like absolutely it should because i don't know what resources that brings whenever i think of that like declaring a state of emergency i think of like tents and water bottles you not, know not sure that would be like yeah <laughs> and I don't, that, that's not helpful so i i don't know i'm hoping more resources fema tents i don't Something. think that that's like helpful yeah <laughs> but anyway obviously there was no such announcement made there was actually no mention of the opioid ep epidemic of addiction treatment, recovery of our incredibly limited resources or anything, the word was not mentioned. And that was very disappointing to a lot of us, especially in the medical profession and in, in addiction and recovery treatment in this area, because we're desperate for help. Yep. So I thought in light of that, my mind has been on that, that topic. Uh, we would talk a little bit about the history of opioid addiction and treatment and how we got to where we are now. 
Now, the as Sydney was explained to me before we got started, not as much in the way of light stuff with this topic, just because the way you put it to me just before we begin is we're still in the Sawbones episode in in with this particular situation. Yeah, that that's kind of how I look at it, is that as we kind of get through the history of how the... Because it really is an epidemic. As you, as you talk about this stuff, it's hard not to think about it as like the building of an infectious disease as a contagious thing that has spread. Uh, as, as, as I kind of go through it, you'll see we're not at a point where we figured out how to turn it around and go in the right direction completely. I mean, people have ideas. People are on the right track. But we're not doing that in mass. Right. Yet. And we're not we're not sort of like. It seems like when big things like this are fixed, they're usually a it's a concerted effort, and it seems like we're still very much divided in 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 regards to this. Exactly. So let's go back. We've done a whole episode on opium before, so I'm not going to go through that. We did the fun side of opium. Yeah. Sort of light, let's take a look at the lighter side of opium. The lighter side of opium, but we know that uh, opium, the sticky euphoria-producing substance from poppies, it's been cultivated for you know, thousands of years by humans and used recreationally for a very long time. And from it, we derive all of the opiates that I'm going to talk about. Uh, it was used for both medicinal and for funsies uh, throughout ancient civilizations. I mean, essentially all of them, Sumerians, yeah, Assyrians, everybody's just Egyptians, Indians, stuff. Arabs, Greeks, Romans, Chinese, everybody, everybody was using this at some point in history for various reasons. Hippocrates wrote about it, noting that it was very helpful specifically for two things, internal disease. Mm, little general, <laughs> hippo, my man. And diseases of women. Okay, I get, so, mm -hmm. all right. This is, well, and when I say diseases of women, and, and we've talked about this before kind of in our hysteria episode, I don't just mean when a woman is sick. When they say diseases of women. You mean like they're the machinery the yes. woman machinery yes hippocrates was probably referencing any kind of menstrual problems um any sort of mood disorder anything pregnancy related childbirth related anything like that normally we, we try to be really careful when uh we're talking about anything gender related on this show but you know he was just pretty much wrong all across the board so we'll just yeah. put this one into the buckwild category mm -hmm. and and we do not need to delve deeper and try to qualify i mean it's not if if your thought is so basically if a woman complains he's just saying give her opium i mean that's kind of what he's saying you so, got it uh opium disappears from european history in the wake of the inquisition there's like this moment where it's like where did all the opium go i don't know nobody's writing about it but it comes back in the 1500s um mainly paracelsus brought it back in the form of laudanum. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Sydenham brought laudanum to the UK about a century later in a very early patent medicine form. So laudanum was a form of opium that was very popular to take for everything. For everything. For everything. And, and even nothing at some point. And as mm -hmm. you can see in, I guess, Tombstone features very prominently, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, Wyatt Earp's wife about. is addicted to laudanum. Yeah. And, and that would be very common... Uh, she says she took it for headaches. Mm -hmm. That's probably exactly what happened. She went to a doctor, said, I'm having headaches. The doctor gave her laudanum because she was a woman and she complained. And there you go. This was not uncommon. It made its way to the United States, probably on the Mayflower. Wow. On the Mayflower. That's where the hand physicians would have carried it in their, in their 
bags. They're doctor bags. Hand in hand. American history and opium history. Mm-hmm. They're just, it just striding it side by side. On the Mayflower. Uh, that's it, I like that, though, because the pilgrims are like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I need to be <laughs> prepared. It's going to be boring on the boat, for sure. I'm probably going right. to get... I don't know, a headache or something. I'm dysentery. Yeah, I'll get dysentery or something. It's going to be whack. I'm definitely Are you kidding? I'd rather I did you pack your electric toothbrush? I did not. I saved it for room for opium, which I definitely <laughs> them. definitely needed. <laughs> you know, they nearly froze in their pilgrim clothes. Or so the song that I sang in kindergarten about the Mayflower went. So. Except for one guy who was like, <laughs> "Wow, y'all look cold." Anyway, I'm going to go take it. I'm going to take a nap. In 1806, Friedrich Wilhelm Adam uh, Sertner, a German chemist, gave us morphine. Named for Morpheus. Not from, from the, the Matrix. Matrix. Nope. I not, knew. Nope. Ooh, the you God beat of me Dreams. There. Nope. <laughs> uh, and that morphine was supposed to be, you know, we already knew that opium could alleviate pain in the form of laudanum, but this was supposed to be a more refined version of this Mm -hmm. so you know that's fine but it was also associated with smoking opium i mean you know there were opium dens there was this whole idea that well yeah it might work but we also kind of knew that it was so it's trying to make it dress it up a little bit to make it seem more medicinal exactly to to give it more of a a, yes exactly so it, it was used again for anything so morphine comes out and they're like great for pain of course it relieves pain but then for anything again uh, women woman complaints and i'm using that again gendered term woman complaints because that's what it would have been labeled on the bottle women complaints um, um at the time um tb tuberculosis anxiety breathing problems mm-hmm. does um does morphine cause effects on dreams is it is, is are those two tied together or is it just the, sure. the idea that you would be chill on it would morphine? make you chill and sleepy and feel good and i mean you get high got it perfect probably it also affects your dreams but not that was not directly the name okay uh so anything it could be prescribed for it was used for and then the civil war happened and morphine became a mainstay in a of a doctor's medical treatment because i mean soldiers on the battlefield there were so often that they didn't know what else to do for these awful wounds and injuries and we didn't understand infection or infection control or any of that. Mm-hmm. So you give people morphine, which is great for pain control. But the result of that is that so many soldiers who managed to survive came home hooked on morphine. That actually morphine addiction was known commonly as soldier's disease. Mm. Uh, so and that that really perpetuated the spread of morphine use and, and abuse later in this country. Yeah. Um, and what helped with that was in 1853, the hypodermic needle is invented. Ah. So then all of a sudden, oral morphine. What were they morphine, doing before then? A lot of them were oral preparations. Oh, really? Yeah. But uh, but the or, but the hypodermic needle makes it easier. we have needles of to... some sort? Like we had needles, right, before then? We had needles, but we didn't, we couldn't deliver quickly intravenously like that before. Wow. That's why it's, that's so mm-hmm. funny. That's that recent. You tend to think of that as so essential so then all of a sudden we could deliver it quickly to the bloodstream and that of course anything that you can deliver directly to the bloodstream generally speaking you're going to get more of a high from Mm -hmm. so that euphoria is going to be more intense and that is more likely to lead to the addiction and cravings and everything else like that Hmm. as opposed to something that dissolves slowly in the gi tract so 
The problem at this point in history is that even as we know this is happening, right? We call it soldier's disease. We know addiction is happening. Is that most of our focus in this area is on alcohol. Hmm. Alcohol was considered the bigger problem. Um, yes, we knew that people were going and using opium, but alcohol was this, I mean, it was very much a, a moral thing. It was a religious thing. It was evil. It was destroying families. It was destroying men's lives. They were leaving their children. They were abandoning their wives. It was, you know, the this was the temperance movement beginning. It seems um, like a lot of those are always connected to society. It wasn't societally yes. like encouraged for you to just like do a bunch of morphine with your buddies, but. No, but the but it was much more demonized to do alcohol. Sure. Uh, so morphine was actually presented initially as a treatment for alcoholism. Hmm. Oh, good, effective. So you I'm go sure. in to some sort of um, home for the you know inebriate kind of thing, place a sober living type house, and they would give you morphine to help you stop using booze. And um, doctors started prescribing it. Honestly, initially. Uh, and then a lot of people ended up addicted because of that. Um, and then, of course, this is also the same period of time when patent medicines are exploding. And you see, you know, and these, are, of course, are medicines that are made by people who maybe have no medical background whatsoever. And usually you're just putting together some sort of powder or syrup or tonic that will contain something that will make you feel good. So you'll think it's working. And usually that was either morphine or opium or uh, alcohol or, you know, marijuana, whatever. Cocaine. So morphine was in everything from headache powders to diarrhea treatments to, as we've talked about before, soothing syrup for babies. If your baby's colicky, if your baby's teething, if your baby just cries because babies do and it bothers you, give them some Got morphine you. syrup. Thank you, modern living. Yeah. So as as more and more people became addicted to morphine instead of alcohol... A new, uh, the, one of the first treatments for morphine addiction, I guess you could say, that was advised was cocaine. <laughs> wow, we are just not doing great. <laughs> no, we're just building on this you think? train of... Now, I, this was not a huge moment where everybody who was first using alcohol became addicted to morphine instead and then shifts to cocaine addiction. It was just kind of a an unfortunate side It's just side, kind of, hey, now we're going line. to do cocaine, everyone. Yeah. Good news. <laughs> A lot is made of that, especially with Freud, who was recommending this and then treat and then also using cocaine and then treating people for cocaine addiction. Yeah, I don't know how to handle your cocaine. <laughs> I always have said that. Now, when it comes to how how to treat this, a lot of it was just trying to pattern after what they were doing for people who were addicted to alcohol. Mm -hmm. So the mainstay of treatment for alcoholism at the time was largely things like asylums and inebriate homes where you would just kind of go lock somebody up um, where you didn't have access to alcohol and try to just counsel them. A lot of them could have been religiously focused mm. or, or just like this moral character based thing. You're going to stay here and you're going to stay sober and you're not going to use again and that kind of thing. Um, but mainly you were locked up and you couldn't, you didn't have access. So in the mid 1800s, this expanded to include also if you're addicted to other stuff, you can come to these places. Mm. Um, but there was no specific like, way to treat it it was just come here and live here and don't don't do drugs was basically it um at the turn of the century a big shift in this is the move into private facilities and a lot of this was heralded by leslie keely now we've we've spoken about keely briefly I, i'm pretty sure in our alcohol episode yeah that sounds right because he invented the keely cure 
which was? The Keeley Cure was, the only thing he would tell you is you would come stay at one of his private treatment facilities and he'd give you injections of a bichloride of gold is what he would tell you was in it. Mm. Now, what was probably also in it, it's been analyzed later, were strychnine, alcohol, atropine, and apomorphine, a morphine derivative. So, so, <laughs> so he'd give you these shots. Sorry, did you say morphine derivative? Uh huh. Okay. So he'd give you these shots, Keely. and and he you would stay there, and it was a private treatment facility. So this wasn't all these other places I mentioned were run by the government. You know, almost like a kind of legal treatment center. These were private, for profit, mm-hmm. and this concept people latched on to as you can imagine because it's still very prominent today we are also expensive the, private right boutique addiction treatment centers right it's a very fashionable addiction to 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 try to treat this is this is the beginnings of this hmm. this is where this kind of started now it is he did believe that alcohol addiction and drug addiction later were medical conditions so that is very important it's progressive yes it was very progressive time. that concept now the treatments for it probably not so progressive so anyway this concept spread to drug use as well as alcohol use and a lot of people who were trying to seek treatment couldn't at this point in history because as these kind of government-run treatment centers started shutting down Mm -hmm. and these private centers took over you couldn't afford them you know just like today a lot of people can't afford those treatment centers Mm -hmm. And so they ended up instead in jail or on the street mm-hmm. instead of actually in a treatment program. Seems like the especially I know this is true nowadays, but certainly back then, I mean, we were so hard up to cure diseases people didn't want to have. I would assume, I mean, and that's not to say that, you know, people don't want drug or alcohol addiction, but, you know, they seem a lot more optional than a lot of other diseases. And I would assume if society's sure. gonna put pressure on something to throw its weight behind curing, it's probably more focused on the stuff that it has no idea how to treat, as opposed to, you know, just stop doing drugs, which is a lot easier said than done, obviously. Absolutely, you're right. I mean, that's a big part of it at this point is there, there still is no widespread acceptance of addiction as a disease. It's very much still seen as a moral or character issue. And as such, people were pretty comfortable with leaving it to the legal system as opposed to the medical establishment to take care of. Mm-hmm. Um, now, at this point, so many people are getting addicted to morphine. By 1898, somebody comes up with a better, safer alternative. Oh, we need thank something goodness. I was starting to get worried there. It seems so dire. We can prescribe people for all these different conditions, and it will be safer than morphine, and we won't have so many people addicted and so that is when heroin is introduced. Okay, come on, guys. Seriously. Really? This is the best we could do? Just inventing worse things? Yeah. It was thought to be non-addictive initially. What? Based on we, what? We didn't understand addiction very well. We didn't understand anything very no. well, apparently. Bear, as in aspirin, Bear, mm-hmm. began marketing it to people who had problems with morphine, who were addicted to morphine as an alternative for pain and also as a cough suppressant, by the way, which I mean, most most opiates do work as a cough suppressant. Well, yeah. at least heroin's got <laughs> that going for it. People um, always want to rush to the bad side of heroin and so rarely we'll talk about all its pluses. Yeah, that's true. I mean, these things will definitely stop your diarrhea and your cough. Perfect. Uh, the This is also a moment, this, I, this side note, 
there was a society called the St. James Society. It was like a altruistic, like religiously based, trying to help mm-hmm. do good charitable organization. Uh, and in an effort to help at this point with the introduction of heroin, they began sending free samples of heroin through the mail to morphine, people addicted to morphine, to try and help them quit. I mean, you you can't beat the convenience of mail order heroin. <laughs> mail order heroin to try to help up. you quit your morphine addiction. Um, now, this was, like I said, this was in 1898 that this is introduced. By 1910, we have documentation of someone walking into Bellevue Hospital and asking for help because they be- they believe they were addicted to heroin. No, oh, that broke bad fast. So huh? It, huh, it took about a decade, and then the numbers just started growing. Um, by 19- That's hilarious, kind of, that it took 10 years. Because that means for 10 years, everyone's like, listen- Heroin is great. This is working so good for me that I don't even want morphine anymore. No. I just want heroin. And the thing is, it's really easy to stick to. That like and I just want it. And actually, I'm, I want more. I actually want more of it because it's so effective <laughs> no. in treating my morphine addiction that I stopped doing seven years ago. I mean, ago. You, you probably did stop doing morphine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's perfectly effective. Now, as we began to see this, again, doctors finally like began kind of in larger numbers by 1914 talking about addiction as a disease and not a moral issue. And I think in large part, like when you see this kind of thing happen, like we're trying to help you get unaddicted to morphine and we, we came up with something new and that within, you know, a decade people are already seeking treatment for addiction to that. And I, I think that doctors at least began to be clued in that there's something else happening here. These aren't bad people. These yeah. aren't people who are fundamentally flawed. There's something else medically that we're missing and we need to figure out what it is. That's been a frustrating um, meeting though when they were all like, listen, bad news, y'all. We got to come up with something worse than heroin. <laughs> I know, well, I know. But people kept trying and by 1916, with heroin clearly being more of a problem than a solution, it was no longer manufactured widely by Bayer but another German company came in and said, we got something else that we've just synthesized that we think we could get ready for the market to replace it, and that is oxycodone. And the story continues. Right after this. <laughs> after the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, 
you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? Pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I'm eating filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes smoothies they got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious and the meals you just eat and eat there's no prepping cooking or cleanup get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week you're going to get exactly what you want no surprises here uh and the meals i can say are delicious so what do you got to lose head on over to factormeals.com sawbones 50 and use code Sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code Sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash Sawbones50 to get 50% off. I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together, we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like, Why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about bugs. No, we don't. Nope. (laughs) Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager. And... I was two butts, 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 butts. So, Sid, uh, we had just synthesized oxycodone. Is that right? That's right. So, oxycodone has been made. Now, this is going to play a larger part as the story continues. But just so that you kind of know what happened with heroin, because obviously it's illegal now, so... So something happened in the interim. Well, in the in 1914, uh, the Harrison Narcotics Act is a big in terms of like opiate legislation. This was a big deal. This was uh, passed in order to clamp down on opiate use, uh, especially by um, like through patent medicines and people who were just kind of handing it out by making it through taxes. Basically, if, it, if you were getting it any way other than with a prescription, it was impossible. Mm-hmm. So this was an attempt to make it something that only doctors could prescribe. Now, at the same time, one side result of this was that it criminalized doctors who were prescribing like opiates for addiction. Mm-hmm. So it made it impossible to try to treat opiate addiction with opiates. Uh, And the problem is that at this point in history, there were a lot of morphine maintenance clinics, 
which were similar to what you might think of as a methadone or suboxone clinic today. Now, of course, morphine is not ideal for this, but it was what they had. So they were trying to run a morphine maintenance clinic where you would go, you'd get your dose, and then you would try to continue to live in society, have a job, have a family and function, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, they basically shut all these down because they became illegal. Doctors weren't allowed to be involved in this anymore Hmm. at this point in history. Um, And so a lot of doctors just said, forget it then. I'm not treating addiction anymore. I'm I'm done. This is too hard. The government is making it impossible. Hmm. And at this point, people start arguing, okay, well, doctors aren't part of the conversation anymore. The medical establishment has walked away. So what is causing the heroin and in general opiate addiction problem? And you start to get into different theories. Is it a moral issue? Perhaps it's just a temperance problem. All we need to do is make it not available. All humans are going to use it if it's there. And we'll make it not available. It's been effective. Make it not available and then everyone will stop. Maybe it's a character thing. Maybe we should work on character building and parenting. Or maybe it's behavioral. Maybe we could just like negative reinforcement slap people in the face every time they use it and then they'll stop. It's definitely an option. Things like this were actually tried with alcohol and and drug addiction. Really? Uh, Maybe it's just educational. Maybe if we just sent everybody to better schools, they wouldn't use heroin. Oh, I thought you meant like they didn't know it was bad for them. Well, that too. Um, Obviously, all these theories were not helpful or progressive. And it took until 1924 when the aptly named Heroin Act made heroin illegal. Succinct and to the point. Yes. Um, But at this point, I think the cat was kind of out of the bag. Uh, The FDA was established in the next decade. There was a lot more oversight. Physicians were allowed to prescribe opiates at this point, although, like I said, not for addiction specifically, but, you know, for other, but it was more regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, and this is where we see heroin kind of move underground and spread like wildfire. Throughout the 20s through well, the 60s. Well, you mean making it harder to get didn't fix the problem. I'm yeah, somehow so banning it didn't weird. stop everyone from using it. That just so never weird. works. Its popularity grew. Um Although, I mean, for and, and usually it was in different, like, you can look through different populations that spread it, like it was cool because of this group or because of this trend or this fad, but it didn't go away. In 1970, the Controlled Substances Act made it Schedule 1, meaning you couldn't prescribe it anymore. Mm. <laughs> Hopefully, it wasn't being prescribed a lot. But it probably was. But it took till 1970 to say that. Uh, Schedule 1 stuff has no medical benefit. Okay. That means you can't prescribe it at all, period. Can't do anything with it. Shouldn't Can't even it, study it. Shouldn't exist. Well, marijuana is Schedule One, so Ooh. so it's a whole mm. other topic. But so it's not actually true when they say that it has no medical benefit, nope. right? It varies. Oh, cool. Not maybe not across the board. Ah. I'd say heroin we're fine with, but yeah, yeah, but maybe marijuana shouldn't be in there. That's a different episode. By the end of Vietnam, What's it was up with a, that episode though. We did we did marijuana. Didn't we, we did marijuana. Let's, I said this. It shouldn't be Schedule One. Let's keep banging that drum though. It shouldn't be Schedule it. One. Let's study it and see what it can do. We're already using it for medical benefit. Like and, let's let's prove I, that it actually does that. Let's and do also some studies. psychedelics as long as we're here. Okay, let's let's stick with opiates right now. I'm right about this. By the end of Vietnam, it was estimated that ten to fifteen percent of soldiers had become addicted to opiates during the war. Um, and at this point, the the Controlled Substances Act was actually amended by what was called the Narcotic Addict Treatment Act. And we are reallowing doctors to get involved in addiction treatment using substances. So like actually using opiates to help mm. wean people off of opiates. 
So methadone clinics are established. That's where this comes in. Okay. So these like government run, legally mandated, not mandated, but legally regulated methadone clinics are started. Um, We are so far behind at this point on like a medical model model for addiction. Uh, We we have begun to understand it somewhat for alcohol. There's been a lot more progress made. We're about in the 70s at this point in history with alcohol than with drug addiction, where we are still just beginning to become accustomed to the idea that maybe it has nothing to do with how many times your parents took you to church or something like that. Believe it or not. So, um, and by the way, on a side note, the 1960s also brought us naloxone or Narcan, which a lot of people have heard of now. They give that to you if you OD, right? Exactly. So it blocks the opiate receptors and it will save you from an overdose. It doesn't help in the long run, but in the moment, it mm-hmm. can save your life. Um, by the 80s, heroin is a huge problem. But this is when a new player comes on the stage. And I've already mentioned we've had oxycodone around since the early 1900s. But that was just the beginning. Uh, Percodan, which was oxycodone plus aspirin. I, mean, I don't think anybody uses that anymore. Was already out there. Vicodin, which is hydrocodone and Tylenol. You might still know it by Lortab or Norco. Mm. Uh, came along in the late 70s. Um, but in the 80s, doctors were still pretty biased against the idea of using these narcotics for anything other than like terminal diagnoses like cancer pain or surgical management or something like that. You didn't go and get narcotics for chronic back pain at this point in history. Mm. Doctors were very biased against that. Okay, that seems good. But a couple things turned the tide. First of all, there were some pain management specialists who began writing very persuasive articles arguing that we were undertreating pain as a nation. Doctors mm. are not taking care of pain. And these same specialists began arguing that the rate of addiction among people who actually have pain is extremely low, basically negligible. So this should not be a reason to stop yourself from prescribing opiates. Basically saying, feel free. As long as the patient really has pain, feel free to prescribe. This was based on, in a lot of cases, a letter to the editor, a five-sentence letter to the editor that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980 by Jane Jane Porter and Dr. Herschel Jick, which referenced a brief survey of their inpatients, patients that they had in the hospital, that they did on their own over a certain period of time, where they went around and said, have you had opiates? Yes. Are you addicted? Yes or no? And they said, like, oh, like 1% are addicted. Based on this letter to the editor, this is not a study. This is not double-blinded. This is not, this is a five-sentence letter to the editor. 608 times this letter has been cited in papers arguing that we undertreat pain and that you are unlikely to become addicted to opiates if you have pain and are treated with them. That's staggering. Just this, this completely unscientific. This letter to the editor, and this was not their intention when they wrote this letter. I mean, I they, we don't want to put Jane and Herschel on no. blast here, y'all. But but this letter has been blown completely out of proportion in terms of medical evidence. Um, and and from here, the race was on. This is when you start hearing this phrase, "pain is the fifth vital sign." You may have heard this. I have not. No. So this was mandated that we needed to start asking patients, are you in pain and treating it just the same as we would a derangement in their heart rate or blood pressure or oxygen level, just the same as we would do that. We need to start treating pain just as aggressively. Um, So we start getting new extended release versions of morphine, fentanyl, oxycodone, hydromorphone, all these different opiate derivatives. 
Purdue rolls out OxyContin, which is billed as a brand new, non-addictive, long-acting opiate that will give your patients back their quality of life, and it is totally safe to use. Excellent. End of episode. For everything. They marketed it to patients. They had videos playing in waiting rooms. They they went to naive doctors who didn't really know how to use opiates in the first place, didn't know how to prescribe them because they hadn't really been, and basically said, listen, use this. Patients are pain-free, no risks. Uh, the number of chron- After this was introduced, the number of patients on chronic opiates jumped by 11 million in this country. Um, and by the time we started to figure out as physicians that, hey, maybe this was wrong. Uh, and at the same time, pharmaceutical companies started making pills that weren't so easy to crush and snort and inject. It was too late obviously right people were already addicted um it is estimated now that for chronic non-cancer pain opiate addiction may be as high as 26 percent. so if we start you on opiates long term for something other than cancer you got about a one in four chance of developing addiction and one in 550 patients started on chronic opiate therapy die of opiate related causes within two and a half years of starting it y'all these drugs were never benign Y'all be careful because people, doctors are still, I've seen so many times, I'm sure Sid has way more experience with that this than I do, but here's so many times that people just casually getting prescribed this stuff. Remember that number in your head, one in four, like how bad is the pain? Seriously, because mm-hmm. there's a one in four chance of addiction. That's wild. America uses 99% of the world's hydrocodone. I'm sorry, I know we're not supposed to give medical advice to people but i'm just some chump with a microphone so i i i can say whatever i want be careful sheesh it i mean that that's this is the thing we we are just now preaching this why are doctors whack at this i'm asking seriously so, why are doctors why are so, doctors still like so ready to gamble on this stuff uh, i think part of it depends on what era of medicine you were trained Prior to the 80s, if you were trained before then, you probably still are pretty reluctant to give pain medication. Um, but if you if the 80s hit you hard in terms of the pain is the fifth vital sign, patients suing doctors and hospitals over, over pain. under-treating pain, um, I, I think that that stuck in a lot of physicians' mind. And that, and that was, you know, the, the years that I trained... That was still told to me, like, listen, these drugs are addictive and they're dangerous and you want to be careful. But if you under treat pain, you can get sued. So you got to treat that pain and yeah. you've got to find a way. And if your patient is hurting, it doesn't matter if you think all of your studies are negative and I can't see the pain and it, you treat them until they're not hurting anymore. And sometimes, <sighs> if, especially if addiction is part of the problem, that's not possible. That's I mean, it's impossible. But I, and I think I think the other thing is that we now are training medical students a lot better on the consequences of these substances and the risks. But I don't think we were for a long time. Yeah. Um, like I said, America uses ninety nine percent of the world's hydrocodone. We have five percent of the world's population. <laughs> it's a crazy number. In West Virginia, uh, overdose deaths are the highest in the nation. We had over eight hundred last year, and we're growing. We're on rate to beat that this year. Um, we lose someone every 10 hours at least to opiates. In, in West this. Virginia alone. Yes. Yes. Um, and of course, as the pills have become harder to get or to use because 
doctors are getting wise and prescribing them less. They're becoming more expensive to buy on the street and they're harder to, they've made them so that instead of being like powdery, like if you crush a tablet and it turns into powder, you can cook it up and inject it. Mm -hmm. They've turned them into stuff like they're ones that are kind of like Skittles. Mm. If you think about it that, how hard would that be to crush and inject? Yeah. So they've changed them to try to make them harder to abuse. But the result has just been heroin has taken over. Heroin's cheaper. It's easier to get. Um, it's easier to use. So it's filled the void. I wish Jamie Oliver fixed this one. You know, he fixed <laughs> the eating he has a thing. Plan. I just wish Jamie would come fix the opioid addiction, Huntington. We've had substances, medications to treat these things since about the 80s. Um, naltrexone, which is Vivitrol, has been around since the 80s. Um, it's been highly like touted by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. I will tell you that it does not have the long history of efficacy in in treating opiate addiction that other substances do. I don't know why there are certain like political figures that get really hung up on Vivitrol as the solution to everything. It's been used a lot more in alcohol addiction than opiate addiction and with su- su- some success. So I'm not saying it's useless, um, but Probably the route to go is methadone and maybe a little better now, buprenorphine, which is Subutex or Suboxone. Although both are shown to be efficacious, I think that there is less of a stigma with Suboxone and Subutex. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is it is an agonist antagonist. So you don't get, you're less likely to have the sedating effect that you do with methadone, Mm -hmm. which is good because the truth is if we can have a patient who's stable on one of those um, medication-assisted therapies as replacement opioid replacements. You're more likely to be able to have a job, have relationships, uh, retain custody of your children. Mm-hmm. I mean, be part of society. Right. You know, be, and have a life back. Right. Give you your life back. Um, the problem is really complicated. We've already talked about it. Money and stigma are probably two of the biggest barriers. There's lots of them. It's uh, treatment programs are expensive. The mm-hmm. ones that are cheap are too few. They're very hard to get into. And a lot of them aren't long aren't long term. So we might detox you and then put you in like a 28 day program. And then that's it. Then what? Right. And then what? And then we tell you to go to NA and hope that that's enough. And NA is great. I'm not saying Narcotics Anonymous is a bad thing. It's just a lot of these patients need more intense treatment than, than just that. Um, we still t- treat people with addiction as if it's a moral failing. I mean, I see that in my professional life. People treat it as if like, well, if you weren't such a degenerate, you wouldn't have this. Right. As opposed to someone who has a chronic disease. And mm-hmm. we need to treat it medically. So now we've got detox. We've got behavioral therapy. We've got counseling. We've got medication-assisted therapy, treat the comorbidities. Does somebody have anxiety? Does somebody have depression? Treat that too. But how do we get it to people? Well, this is the part, this is always my favorite bar of substance because this is when Sydney's like, but the good news is we've got things a little more figured out these days. And then you say that. Okay, I will give you good news. <laughs> we don't have it all figured out. This is a complicated problem. But... There are smart people who are doing this research. Um, I went to the, I went to a heroin summit. That sounds like a really weird thing to go mm-hmm. to. It's actually the National Prescription Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit. I went to back in May, April, sometime Something recently. Like and there are very smart people researching this and working on this all over the country, all over the world. But this was focused on our country. And there are answers to these problems. What we need, though, is a coordinated effort that's got to start from the government. 
it has to be funded and we have to aggressively treat this chronic disease of opiate addiction the same way that the government decided they were going to aggressively support people who had renal failure and needed dialysis. Mm -hmm. You know, the government pays for everybody to get dialysis who needs it. Okay, well, this is a chronic disease with devastating consequences. Let's take care of it, too. We need that coordinated effort because there are smart people with answers. It's just getting those answers turned into action that is the that is the problem right now. But it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. We just all have to work together a lot harder to make it happen. Folks, that's going to do it for us this week on Sawbones. We hope you have, if not enjoyed yourself, at least feel <laughs> if it, you if you want to know about, about it. If you want to know about this stuff, a better person to, than me, um, the book Dreamland by the author Sam Quinones is a wonderful book that documents the whole history of this. And a lot of the story I'm telling you, I read his book. I got from him as well as a lot of other resources, but um, I would highly recommend that book. If this is something that interests you and that you, you know, might want to look into how you can help with. Um, uh, that is going to do it for us though. I want to say thank you to the taxpayers for letting us use their song medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And uh, thank you to the maximumfund.org network for having us as part of their extended podcasting family. There's a ton of great shows you can listen to. I'd like to recommend a favorite of mine. It's called still buffering. This show Sydney makes with her sisters Taylor and Riley. Well, thank you, honey. And uh, this week they have an Ask a Teen episode, which is our, our always. Would you say this one's educational or entertaining? Which is it, or or like a delicious blend? I think it's both. I think it's both. We definitely learned some things from Riley that were scary. Keep your, <laughs> keep but your, also funny. Keep your uh, finger on the pulse of teen life with uh, still buffering and and all the great Max Fun shows. Um, but, folks, that is going to do it for us. And uh, we hope you'll join us again next week for Sawbones. Until then, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.